This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton-Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Professor Yanis Lianis about the need for academics who question the status quo in the era of big tech. You don't want this kind of consensus to be becoming sort of religious mantra that, you know, becomes a taboo and no one really dares to say anything about it. We see that a little bit. Things that were mavericks back in the 1970s became almost religious dogmas now. And, you know, have a hard time <laughs> to get rid of that. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. In episode 13 of Competition Law, I talked with Professor Danny Sokol from the University of Florida about the controversy surrounding funding of academic research by large tech companies. He himself having been named in an infamous list of so-called Google academics. And he told us... On a minute, that wasn't Danny. That was the Australian heavy metal band ACDC from their popular track Guns for Hire. Let's try again. Here's Danny. I can't think of many academics who say, I'm a gun for hire. You tell me what to write, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. I think most people are hired because they already take a certain approach. And so Danny explained there are a range of factors that might affect an academic's objectivity. But their impact would be, in his words, on the margins. In this episode of Competition Law, we're joined by Professor Janis Lianis from the University College of London. As you'll hear, Janis takes a less, mm, let's say, a less laissez-faire approach to this topic. Together with colleagues, he's championed a declaration of transparency and disclosure by the Academic Society for Competition Law, ASCOLA. Yanis tells us what led to the declaration and why he feels so strongly about it. But this episode is not just about why we should be concerned to protect the integrity of academic research. It's a rallying cry for academics who are prepared to swim outside the mainstream and why we need more of them. Before we got there, though, I wanted to find out why academic interest in competition law has been growing in Europe while well, in the US, it's been on the wane. And that's where Yanis and I got started. You know, it's first, is enforcement. So we do see in Europe quite a lot of enforcement of competition law at the European level, also at the national level. We haven't really seen much enforcement happening in the US, or at least there is a lot of enforcement, but it's actually much less than what it was in the past. So I, I think that has probably affected the interest of US students in the area. I mean, as far as I can hear from my colleagues teaching in the US, there is actually, you know, much less interest in this area than it was basically in the 1970s or the early 80s and less, you know, hiring in terms of uh, academics specializing in competition. I think in Europe, we've seen the, the opposite trend. I mean, there's a lot of interest in terms of enforcement and that obviously leads to a lot of students and also demand for academia. And I think at the same time, competition law being one of the areas of exclusive competence of the EU when, you know, that concerns effect on trade, 
and the EU being very active in, in that and, you know, not only active in terms of enforcement, but also in terms of communication. Usually, the Commissioner for Competition Policy is uh, one of the most well-known figures of the Commission. Uh, That's certainly the case with the current one. Exactly. I mean, the previous ones as well, but I mean, the current one, obviously, this is very high profile in terms of political uh, impact. And I do think, you know, that really raises uh, a lot of interest. And obviously, we have now all these debates about digital platforms and how we should reconceive competition line policy. And as you know, the Commission is taking pretty active interest in the topic. We have That's an understatement, Jan. <laughs> We have a number of very high-profile cases, obviously the Google cases, now the Amazon uh, investigation. So I do think really that these are topics that are attracting media attention. They are quite uh, sexy topics, if I may use this term. I mean, the students like technology, so this is an intersection between, you know, low-end technology, so it's very different from the uh, formalistic, let's say, uh, legal education that some of them may have received on the undergraduate level. So they see there quite a lot of interest in economics, public policy, technology. They see an area developing very quickly. I think if I were a student, again, you know, I would probably choose this area. How much are the academics in this field in Europe from the legal discipline as opposed to the economics discipline? And just how interdisciplinary is it? Uh, from economic uh, faculties, it really depends because I would say industrial organization is not really a topic that attracts a lot of students in economics nowadays. And also faculties have difficulties to uh, hire in the area of uh, industrial organization. Many of these uh, people prefer to go to practice and they become forensic economists. Obviously, you know, they make much more money than as they will do as academics. Um, And then, you know, that creates a problem for attracting faculty. In the U.S., many economic scholars are doing consulting on the side or are indeed full-time consulting and doing a bit of academia on the side. Do you get much by way of that model in Europe? Yes, to a certain extent. But I think the majority of these colleagues, they prefer to work for the public sector, like be a member of a competition authority or advise government um, at a different level. But what you see is probably more of a specialization in Europe in the sense that you have people that are really focusing on doing forensic economics. They do on the side, maybe, you know, they have a visiting professorship somewhere. They teach probably a few seminars, but they're not really part of the faculty. Do you see benefits of having academics who can straddle both worlds and have the big picture perspective that academia brings, but also first-hand experience with what some might say are the realities of practice? Absolutely. I think this is really something that we need to do more systematically in Europe. And it's quite unfortunate that we don't have this revolving door between academia and uh, public enforcement agencies uh, as much as we have it in the U.S., for instance, in terms of leadership positions. I do think that having academics spending a couple of years in one of the enforcement authorities uh, could be very beneficial for both the enforcement authority and also academia. And I definitely believe that uh, also you know, there might be of interest for some academics to work in private practice. I think that you learn quite a lot by doing consultancies. You learn about an industry very well, how it works. You actually develop more acute understanding of motivations of business. 
the economic side of business that you can read about it, but it's different, actually. <laughs> you see how it works. And I do think that really improves quite a lot uh, scholarship. Now, the difficulty there is to uh, make sure that, uh, you know, when you work as a consultant or, or as a lawyer, you don't necessarily write in the specific field that your consultancy was about, because I think that will create the risk that you might have been influenced by uh, material interests you know, that you had you know, as a consultant in this case. You have been actively campaigning to address what you regard as serious risks to the integrity and independence of academic research in this field. What sparked off your concerns in this regard? Well, I mean, this is not only my crusade, I have to say. I mean, there are a lot of people that have been working for the development of the ASCOLA Code of Conduct. ASCOLA is the Association of Competition Law Scholars. It's an international association of uh, academics in competition law and policy. I mean, we have economists and, and lawyers working together, actually, in the context of this nonprofit. And the idea of ASCOLA was basically to be some form of a network you know, of academics and organize an annual meeting where we present our papers. And that was great. But at the same time, we have been seeing in the press quite a lot of stories lately criticizing the integrity of academia, providing examples of colleagues or centers that have been funded by corporations in a way basically to promote the interests of, of these corporations. Obviously, that concerned quite a lot of us because it's a classic uh, market for lemons problem <laughs> because once you have um, this kind of bad reputation for academia, it's extremely difficult for those uh, of us that are not really funded, to uh, be perceived as neutral and independent observers. Although I'm very positive about funding and even private funding, I don't necessarily criticize that. I do think that we need to be very careful about transparency. So disclosure rules, I think, are extremely important in this area so that you can inform your readers that you might have this material bias, which might affect I'm not necessarily saying that it always affects, but it might affect or it might be perceived to affect your judgment. Are these new concerns or accentuated in the current climate in any way? I mean, they have always been around. And I think now we see a number of corporations that are really funding systematically a few academics. And usually that is happening by corporations that actually have pending cases. There's a lot of... Uh, media attention, their practices, and you see somehow a correlation there where you can support an increase of funding. So, for instance, Google is accused to be doing now. Microsoft was doing that actually 10 years ago. I think that the fact that we have now pretty strong economic players, which have quite a lot to lose in case there is a systematic, active, aggressive you know, competition enforcement, Obviously, there is there some kind of interest that develops in terms of, well, let's at least try to do something about these regulators and try to influence them as much as we can. And this can be done through lobbying, the classic old-style lobbying of inviting people for lunch or dinner, etc. You need experts. I mean, even for direct lobbying, I mean, you really need to have experts to write papers. You need to fund nonprofits or different types of intellectual hubs to produce research that justifies the conduct of your company. And at the same time, also now we see organizing campaigns um, 
by hiring a number of academics to write papers on specific topics that are of interest for the corporation. So this is part of a strategy which is uh, becoming more and more complex. Do these developments indicate a belief on behalf of the funding companies, if not a fact, that academic research is influential on the political process or the policy-making process or, in fact, on the decision-making and analysis of enforcement agencies? Yes, I do think so. I think you know, that shows that academic research has influence. And I think that's a good thing for us having to know. And obviously, otherwise, they won't pay for it. But at the same time, I think this practice and the generalization of this practice without proper rules and disclosures and transparency uh, is one of the type of rules that we can have, might lead to uh, discredit academia and harm, actually, the uh, possibility that academia has to influence the debate and promote discussion and obviously influence uh, the government. While trust is falling in almost every large institution, public and private, trust in academia remains fairly high. And so I guess what's behind your argument here is that if we're to maintain that trust, which itself is a condition of maintaining not just the relevance but the potential for academic research to have a beneficial impact, we have to put the types of measures around disclosure that you're talking about. Exactly. And I think society is investing in academia. I mean, there's, um, at least in Europe, there's quite a lot of public funding of universities for teaching, but also for research. There is a social value coming out of academic research. And I think that is great that corporations and other private entities uh, want to fund academic research. This is also because I think they see social value out of that research. But at the same time, we need to be extremely careful so that this funding doesn't create a social cost, which is, as you mentioned, mistrust to academia that might affect basically the impact that research might have. And that is problematic because if we can't really discuss between us in a rational way, and I think what is academia is basically putting positions with arguments and finding out data to support various arguments. I mean, if we don't really have academia to mediate, basically, these kind of discussions that we have uh, between us as members of society, then we actually um, suppress rational discussion. And that leads, basically, to irrationality. That leads to rhetorics and ideology taking over facts, you know, and arguments. And I don't think that's positive for society generally. How important is it to have these types of protections that you talk about in light of the fact that we are now working, indeed all living, in a highly mediatized environment such that back in the day when academic research was the exclusive province of musty old journals, mostly on library shelves, nowadays academic research penetrates mainstream media, um, as well as online through social media, then can readily be widespread and accessible. Do you think that heightens the risks and strengthens the importance of the disclosure rules you've referred to? Yes, I do. I think you are referring to a very important change that has actually happened with the development of electronic academia, if I call it that way, uh, you know, through blogs, but then also through... Podcasts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> At the same time, things in terms of politics also, in terms of economy, are doing, going so fast nowadays. I mean, the cycles, basically, 
are almost now a matter of minutes. I mean, with Twitter, you can actually have discussions developing almost contemporaneously than the events are unfolding. So that was not something that we had before. And the idea of the academia in the past was actually they had time to think about the virus uh, dynamics. They had time to draft the paper, uh, probably taking a few months, sometimes even years. But now, actually, we have to react almost immediately. Amazon investigation was investigated uh, a couple of days ago. I had like a couple of journalists from major media companies calling me, like asking me to comment on that. You're asked somehow to react and even to publish papers because there's also quite a lot of competition now in terms of who's going to be the first to analyze this new thing, you know, this new technology. So there's a lot of pressure to write something very quickly and post it at the SSRN and then diffuse it to a number of followers, you know, through Twitter and other kind of social media. And I think, you know, that is changing academia. So that's why I think it's also important to have disclosure rules because in the past there was a process of peer review So uh, things that were taking quite long to be published, you know, there was a debate that was taking more time to settle. And now we don't have this time. So we need to have disclosure rules because we can't expect the readers to be aware of social and economic contexts in which that particular paper was drafted, right? And to follow the discussion that has been happening before to which this particular paper contributes to. So I do think by disclosing, you at least indicate that I don't really have material bias in this particular discussion. I may have an ideological bias, and I think that's absolutely fine. People can immediately (laughs) find out if you have ideological bias by reading the paper. But material bias, if you don't disclose it, people can't really know. So this is really why it is extremely important, because it preserves somehow the readers from being misled to a certain extent. And there's a high likelihood that that might happen now with because it's, things are so fast. There's so much information coming in. Well, how far would you take the expectation or requirement of disclosure is it disclosure just of direct financial support for the no, um, research yeah. output? We discussed that, we had quite long discussions uh, in the group. We did not necessarily all agree. Uh, the final text is a compromise. The, to certain extent. So you're referring now back to the Ascola Declaration? Exactly. Hmm. I was in favor of a quite broad disclosure and uh, not only direct, but also indirect funding and not only funding to academics individually, but also to centers. Uh, we have seen practice to provide funding to spouses or family members, and we included that as well. So it might be a little bit excessive, at least. Uh, you know, Some might think that this is excessive, but I think you know it is justified. And I'm assuming you would include existing affiliations with industry or employment roles in consulting or indeed acting as an expert witness. Would you go as far as to say prior roles by way of employment or affiliations or potential future ones that might be scheduled for the future, those should be disclosed too? I think we have specific rules concerning disclosure of whatever compensation received the last three years before writing the article of more than 10,000 US dollars. With regards to future employment possibilities, I mean, that's a pretty hard one. I mean, you can't really have factors that concern the intention basically, of the person that wrote an article. How can you determine that? It is a problem in a certain way. I mean, you have a a market there. 
academic pay is not uh, phenomenal. Um, people might be attracted by career of supporting specific company or specific companies they become sort of matchmakers linking companies and other academics i mean we have seen that you know this kind of academic entrepreneurs developing in recent years organizing conferences being paid for it by the company and uh, selecting the academics that have to be part of the conference this is something that you can develop practices and rules that might limit this occurring but you can't eliminate As you pointed out, there are limitations because you can't eliminate all unconscious bias to begin with. And academics, as you say, like anyone, might be thinking about future career directions or potential openings that might guide at least the selection of their research focus, if not the actual content of it. But you do have rules in that declaration that go to objectivity and independence, and in particular, the requirement to disclose if there was another party that had a right to review the research? You know, it has come to our attention that sometimes academics have been asked to write a report for a specific theme that could be published, but then before publishing it, they were asked to share it with funders to get feedback. That might be a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. So a good thing because obviously... You're writing a practical piece of work. You want to take into account the views of the stakeholders, and obviously the stakeholders have to (laughs) deliver those views to you, and obviously you have to send the paper so the stakeholders can comment on that. But again, here, it's about stakeholders. So you're inclusive somehow. You're sending it to a number of conflicting interests, possibly, that could provide feedback. Now, if you are sending only to your funder, by definition, the views that this funder will have present only his own interests. So there is a risk that your views frame only by one side of the story and you don't take adequate account of the other sides of the story. I'm not saying necessarily that this should not happen. What I'm saying is if it happens, then you should disclose that so that people at least know that you have been uh, more inspired by one side of the story and they can also look to find the other side of the story. And in principle, if the article is a good article, you should include a literature review which is exhaustive at the beginning and which also refers to papers that take the other side of the story so that the readers are able to find them pretty quickly and read the other side of the story as well. I take it from what you're saying that your concerns are not just at the level of the individual academic but would extend to funding of universities or research centres, and indeed you've referred to research centres a number of times. There have been a number of high-profile instances in the US of universities with profiles in antitrust receiving large gifts, and of course philanthropic support of universities in the US far exceeds that that is seen in other jurisdictions. What sort of rules do you think universities should have around those types of gifts to protect the integrity of their academic activity, not just research, but teaching? Sure. I think it's a pretty tough question and will require quite a lot of thinking from university leaders in a way of how you deal with that because there's, of course, a pressure to 
collect funding. And, uh, you know, if you are a dean, I guess uh, one of the first jobs you, you have to do is to attract funding. <laughs> so That's right. It's part of the job description. Exactly. You are required to do that. And you are successful if you do that. But then, you know, if you manage to attract the funding, you need to handle the issue of uh, independence of research. So what I will say is that it's probably good to develop a sort of no-go areas in a way. Uh, for instance, I think, you know, it's pretty clear that the funder uh, should not have authority over recruitment. This should be an independent process governed by academic procedures. Usually there is an appointments committee and the faculty, but I think, you know, without any advice uh, sought by the funder, I think that's pretty uh, a no-go area. And of course, you know, you really need to negotiate that and uh, to explain to the companies that their investment will pay more in case the center is uh, independent and is, uh, is doing good work. Otherwise, it's kind of throwing your money out to research and center that doesn't really have an impact. And I'm actually very much surprised sometimes to see these major corporations funding, uh, you know, centers and academics that, in my view, do not really have a lot of impact because of the fact that they are perceived as being biased and they have a reputation of being biased. So somehow it's a little bit like throwing your money, (laughs) burning your money to a certain extent. Have you had much of an opportunity to talk to representatives of these large private funders about how they see these issues? Yes. Obviously, I made efforts to contact some of the tech companies and other companies that have been in the news concerning funding. And to inform them about the initiative, to tell them that it's not our objective to be against corporate funding, actually. On the contrary, we think that it's a good thing, but it has to be done in a proper way. And I try to explain to them the interest that they might also have in promoting disclosure. And I would say even in case they decide to comply by the rules um, of this scholar declaration, I think probably they're the best to re-implement the principles because um, they are the source somehow of the funding and in case they have strict rules and procedures uh, and they disclose it on the website, the academics have been funding or the centers have been funding, how much they have been giving, etc. I think that would be very, very useful. Did you Um, get much of a receptive audience in those tech company discussions? I think, yes. I think they were listening and they are also concerned about the uh, media attention that they had about this I haven't seen any concrete steps yet, but it's pretty early. The declaration was adopted this summer. We've talked about a couple of the general principles that underpin the declaration, the one being transparency and the other being objectivity and independence. You've just referred to fairness as another guiding principle. What does that actually mean? I think it means that we need to represent the various views that have been put forward by the literature. So it's a matter of representing accurately the debate. But I think it moves a little bit further than just that. I think that there is a lot of asymmetry of power in a certain way in in, in what we're seeing. There is, from one side, quite a lot of funding for a number of academics writing about these companies and for these companies. And from the other side, in particular, in the developing world, you just don't really have anyone (laughs) or very, very few. So there is a problem that one side of the story gets quite a lot of attention and the other one doesn't. And that's not because of the quality of the arguments. It's just because of the fact that one side is pretty uh, powerful and the other one is not. And from that perspective, I think that we need to do something to bring more balance to this. So what I was thinking, and I'm kind of thinking aloud right now, is that maybe what we can do is to require these companies 
needs to match, or at least to a certain extent match, the funding they provide to research, to centers or academics that they select, with funding that could go to an independent, even global organization. It could be a scholar, it could be something else, which will then redistribute this funding to promote, according to peer review and academic principles, the same ones that we have for public funding of research. The idea there is to guarantee that the best research projects are selected so that we use that particular funding to fund research that takes different perspective or at least tries to be more plural. And there's another dimension as well to fairness, which I didn't mention, and that is the idea that usually we like to develop a consensus view. We have a consensus view. There is something called mainstream economics. There's something called mainstream competition law, and obviously that represents a consensus view, and I think that's very good. But I think it's also important to fund research... Mavericks. <laughs> exactly, that the mavericks, exactly, yeah. And I think that is also bringing more equilibrium, in a way, in the system, because you don't want this kind of consensus to be becoming sort of religious mantra that becomes a taboo and no one really dares to say anything about it. We see that a little bit, I mean, in competition, unfortunately. Things that were mavericks back in the 1970s became almost religious dogmas now. And, you know, have a hard time <laughs> to get rid of that. That is something also is quite important. And I yeah, think... academic innovation, really. Exactly, yes. And mavericks, you know, these mavericks might be outsiders. Some of the quite interesting work that has been done lately in antitrust is the work of Lina Khan and the New Brandes School. Not necessarily agree with what they say, but when they started, actually, they were perceived as outsiders. Yeah, questioning the status quo. Exactly. What they brought was extremely refreshing because it generated debate on a topic that was there. We were feeling uncomfortable about it, but we're much less expressing this uncomfort in our papers, I would say. And why is that? Because we were somehow afraid a little bit to question this religion that has taken on this, uh, this area. So... And the hierarchy, actually, that comes out of it. I mean, obviously, you want to progress in your academic career to get the chair, you know, I mean, you really need to write things that your older colleagues will appreciate. Well, that's right. I mean, that's the essence of peer review. We all write research grant applications, and when we're writing articles, we have the views of the potential peer reviewers Exactly, in exactly. And this idea of having the mavericks, providing opportunities to question, basically, a consensus view, it's very important. And I think it's also very important that we show the uh, adequate respect. I mean, we can't dismiss them immediately because, oh, they are not really the mainstream view, they're not the consensus, or you know, this is politically motivated. You know, maybe ideologically motivated, but that's not the problem. You know, I think ideology is not a problem. It's actually material bias is a problem. <laughs> ideology is pretty clear. I mean, you can actually immediately see. But this is not just ideological scholarship. I mean, it's a scholarship with evidence, you know, with arguments and uh, you have to engage with them seriously and, you know, show that they could respect. Um, and I think that's something that, um, you know, we need to do a bit more. We talk so much about power in competition law and not just about the consequences of market power for consumers, but its effect on us as citizens, on the political and social fabric of our societies. To be honest, the impact of market power on academic research had just really not occurred to me. Maybe I've been naive. Yanis's reflections on this have given me much food for thought, and I hope they have for you too. 
Next on Competition Law, I talk to Google's chief economist, Hal Varian, an academic himself, at least in a past life. Thanks to the many of you who've sent me suggestions for the discussion, I'm just sorry we didn't have all day. Until then, you can find links to the Ascola Declaration, as well as some of Yanis's recent work in the show notes. And as always, you'll find all our previous episodes and links at competitionlaw.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and please just take a moment to leave us a review. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecord.com, and I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. See you next time.